Hello and welcome to Codish, an exploration of the lives of modern developers. Join us as we dive into topics like languages and frameworks, data and event-driven architectures, and individual and team productivity, all tailored to developers and engineering leaders. This episode is part of our Deeply Technical series. For Codish, this is Robert Blumen. I am a DevOps engineer at Salesforce. I have with me today Sean Porter. Sean has over a decade of experience in DevOps and infrastructure and is the co-founder of Sensu, a provider of open source monitoring. We'll be talking about monitoring privacy and security in the public cloud. Sean, welcome to Codish. Thanks for having me, Robert. We are going to be talking about monitoring privacy and security, but I want to start out with a more general discussion about monitoring. Monitoring has its origins in infrastructure, monitoring performance and availability. The Google SRE book, which has been very influential, talks about the four golden signals, which are latency, throughput, error rate, and saturation. None of those are either security or privacy. How do you extend the idea of monitoring to security and privacy? I think, you know, the first, while the golden rules are good for identifying there's an issue with the system, you know, distributed or not at any scale, uh, more context is always required in order to troubleshoot the issues that, you know, those golden signals identify. And and it comes down to like context is is really key to quicker resolutions um, and more effective retrospectives. You know, to collect this context, we we trace, we log, we also periodically probe our services to measure and record that data. That process of data collection and analysis really extends beyond just our, those normal signals. Um, we start to process more information about our systems and how they operate, uh, and then it kind of bleeds over into the user experience, how users are consuming the services that we build and maintain and, and service. So I think monitoring as, as an umbrella just keeps expanding, expanding to from everything from how our services are performing and whether they're up or down to how our users are interacting with our systems to, you know, are they meeting regulatory uh, policies also kind of falls under that umbrella. So just monitoring for me is really just observing, measuring and analyzing data in an automated fashion. So anything that you can apply that to, I consider to be under the umbrella of monitoring. Does that make sense? It does. Uh, let me ask you another question, which I think might help illuminate this. I think of monitoring as systems collect metrics, publish them, and then you have tools that ingest the metrics, save them, and you're defining what is a normal condition and what is an anomaly. Certainly you could apply that to memory or latency or running out of disk space, but you could also apply that to security and privacy if you can define what is normal and what is an anomaly. Mm-hmm. Is that where you were going with that, yeah. your discussion? Yeah, absolutely. I think, I think. I mean, we can look at a number of, of different tools and approaches and practices in the space of security and privacy. You know, if, if we look at one example, uh, intrusion detection, you start with like an assumed correct safe state. And then any unplanned changes to that state are, are to be considered violations. You know, those violations could be considered the anomaly, you know, uh, similar to, you know, your time series data, your metrics and anything that constitutes an anomaly needs attention. 
same can be said for intrusion detection. Um, if we think of even what everyone has on their home PC, you know, virus scanning or vulnerability scanning. If you look at the enterprise, we have tools in the space for scanning all of our systems and our applications for known vulnerabilities. Those vulnerabilities could be considered an anomaly, um, either an automated action or a human being needs to be involved to take action on that. You know, it again, it, it's very much in line with considering monitoring to just being time series data, but the same pattern can be applied across security and privacy. If you're talking about states of infrastructure, if you built your infrastructure, you could scan it and look for vulnerabilities. But if you fix them, then ideally they should stay fixed unless you're changing things. So are you talking about uh, unplanned changes? Like why is that port open on that server when we didn't configure it that way? Yeah, I mean, I guess unplanned changes is is generic or broad by intention. Uh, it could be somebody reverted a change in a Git repository that applied a set of changes or somebody jumped on the individual machine and like, oh, I really need to troubleshoot this this issue using Telnet and then punched a hole or what have you um, and then forgot to revert it. Uh, or it could be actually a malicious attacker, uh, you know, that's gotten on your cloud infrastructure and, and now they're starting to wreak havoc and, and kind of uh, instrument your infrastructure with their own tooling, if you will. So, you know, I think if you, if you look at some of the practices over the last 10 years, namely with like config management, you know, that was kind of used as a way to combat some of these unplanned changes uh, through consecutive runs, you know, Chef or Puppet or Ansible would just revert any uh, uh, anomalies. The, the problem with that is even if you uh, revert the anomaly or you address it, your system may have already been compromised. So even in that case, it's important that we raise those signals so that people or systems looking for them uh, can pay attention and take appropriate action. If that port was open for long enough for somebody to replace binaries on your system that you use every day, you know, that's a that's a pretty serious condition. Now, it is very common with infrastructure as code tools that you would run them either on a schedule or periodically. If they see configuration drift, they'll revert to a known good state. And they might generate some kind of report and maybe someone will look at, at it or not. Are you advocating that these tools, when they run, they should create some kind of useful metrics like this is how many configurations were reverted and or... Where are you going with that? Yeah, I think I think metrics or time series as it relates to system configuration works really great for like a high level overview or a, a top level signal. So that yeah, I think your your idea or example of you know recording the number of resources touched or modified between runs is fantastic because it'll give you an idea of how efficient and effective your config management is. You know, perhaps you have a little bit of debt there where not all those resources needed to be touched every run. So that's that's kind of a, a good measurement to use for improving the quality of your infrastructure's code, your config management. But I think, you know, the same as with like general monitoring and, and those golden signals to see when things are going awry or need attention, context is king. You know, same thing applies to config management and, and drift is, you still want those writ, like context-rich reports to be saved and archived somewhere, at least so you can look at them and throw them away later intentionally. But 
those high level metrics are really just for you at a glance to know if something's wrong, then you can dig into these and really understand why these changes are occurring and what corrective actions could be taken. So you definitely need both. You need your, just like with regular systems monitoring, you need your time series and then you need your event data, uh, your context rich event data too. In the case of, let's take one of the four golden signals, like saturation, I should never see a disk fill up and that's always an error. With configuration management, if you're making changes to your configuration, then the next time it runs, you would expect to see modifications as they get applied across the system. But if nobody's making any changes and there was a lot of modifications, maybe something is going on. How can you reasonably define what is an anomaly and what is expected? It seems a bit harder than in the case of some of the infrastructure metrics. It matters how you're approaching config management. For example, if you're using uh, like a golden image that kind of acts as a baseline for your systems, you kind of expect like config management tools uh, or any scripting that are attuned to them to only touch so many things. So you have your standard baseline, then you have a, a preconceived or set expectation in 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 a matter of how many things are going to get modified. So that's that's one thing. So because you have your golden image, that sets your baseline. The other is like from a raw bootstrap. So you start from a, a VM image that's just like Ubuntu 18.04 or, uh, you know, RHEL 7. Um, in that case, your baseline is only really established after your first config run. Uh, and then you're looking for patterns. Um, and what's really interesting is if you continuously run your uh, config management and you're storing, you know, these metrics like modified objects and time series, you will see a pattern emerge. Uh, we as human beings are great at pattern recognition, even if it might not be there, but you, we could see it on a chart and, and know what is not normal. So I think those are two examples. So there's golden, golden images, kind of establish your baseline, and then you have straight raw bootstrap, which only uh, creates a baseline after it's had an initial bootstrap run. Some organizations use an approach of immutable infrastructure where you build images using a pipeline and you never update them. If you need to make a change, you build everything new. That is in contrast to the approach where you run Puppet every 30 minutes to apply your changes. It makes sense to combine these approaches to build immutable infrastructure and then run Puppet. And if it sees any changes, it reverts them, but you should never see any changes. So if you see even one, that's an anomaly. Uh, yeah, that, that's a perfectly valid practice. Um, I mean, and if you do, you could use Puppet to bootstrap the image that you then snapshot and uses your complete image for a particular service. Then there should be zero modifications. Uh, and yeah, you could continue to use Puppet for that purpose, or you could use like a, a simple intrusion detection system, uh, some low-cost means of just monitoring on an ongoing basis to make sure that that immutable image remains immutable and your application isn't leaving the boundaries that you set in terms of, you know, space where it's allowed to write to disk or any storage medium. Can you describe what is an intrusion detection system and how would that tie into monitoring? So intrusion detection at, at the basic is just looking for, for simple changes in, in state. Um, it's really all about, it, it kind of boils down to 
take a snapshot of your your system, usually your entire file system, and uh, observe how many bytes are in each binary, um, permissions um, of directories and files within, and kind of record all that information. And then periodically and possibly aggressively probe uh, all those things to see if they get modified. And if they get modified, compare what was modified with a static list of um, severities, if you will. So you could say, oh, if these particular groups of files or binaries get switched, it's a higher severity. For example, if somebody replaces SSH binary or PS on your system, that's pretty high severity. You should know about that because its surface area is quite large. So at a glance, that's kind of what intrusion detection is. And because it's like this really simple system that says these things have changed, here's the signal, that signal is really easy to interpret as, you know, a monitoring check. And then that monitoring check could result in firing off uh, an alert through PagerDuty as an example to wake somebody up or uh, saving that um, that signal to a time series database or a document store like Elastic or Splunk. Uh, really, the um, options are kind of endless. There's so many things you could do with that. I went through the pipeline of metrics, anomalies, and then you introduced alerts that goes to an operator. What actions does the operator take when they receive an alert of this type? So what's interesting is you don't have to have an operator there. Um, They could be an observer for a more automated approach. Uh, For example, as you could do the common practice of what we refer to as auto, auto remediation. Um, so if there is uh, an intrusion or a modification detected, you know, you could trigger CM runs to uh, override. Or if you're going the very like golden image or complete image approach, ah, something's been mutated, nuke this VM or container completely and stand up something anew. And really all these automated actions are just being measured and presented to an operator to observe that A, they happened and B, they didn't have secondary adverse effects on the overall system. Um, if that isn't the case, uh, usually an operator would have to, you know, use their operator human brain and be like, well, does this look uh, severe or not? Why did this occur? You know, do we have any code changes that applied right around the time of that getting modified? You just kind of go more into like a retrospective um, or a post-mortem uh, kind of workflow of investigating why it occurred and then see if something actually needs to be remediated. Suppose an attacker has gained access to a server, they've replaced some executables with programs that contain some sort of Trojan horse or backdoor. They're hoping that someone will run those programs, <laughs> but immediately the instance is terminated and replaced with a good instance. How effective is that type of auto remediation? Do we have any real evidence or hard data on how quickly does this repel or prevent attacks? The problem is, is, is generally when you replace something with a, a new copy of the same thing, the vulnerability is still present and the way that the attacker actually achieved or almost achieved their goal is still going to work. Um, and then it also creates an opportunity, a new form of denial of service by using that leverage, leveraging that vulnerability to not necessarily successfully get your binary on the machine or modify anything beyond a simple file. But if you did that on mass on other things that look like that, 
you can effectively cause like a restart loop of that application for a particular business. So I don't think it's wise to use as a general practice. I think it's it's an interesting practice that we can exercise and learn more about how it actually operates and behaves in the wild. I think it's a, it's a noble idea that we can continue to automate more of, uh, of our daily work, though. By nuking where I first go is storing instance, would it make sense to sequester it for forensics to identify how it was able to be attacked in the first place? Yeah, absolutely. I think your, your first thing in auto remediation may be to capture more systems data report in a out of ban manner, like collect data or label it or tag it elsewhere. You're likely already um, logging uh, system logs and other things. So you have some signals already saved off, off that machine. If you want to go further, I think that's a great idea of essentially unplugging or, or dis- disconnecting it uh, in a way for forensic analysis later is a cool practice. Um, the only thing it may not scale well if you're a small team managing hundreds of, or thousands of machines. The unfortunate reality is it might you know not come to pass. You might not be able to take the time to analyze that machine. Some of the discussion we're having is fairly general. Other aspects rely on features of public cloud. Could you highlight a bit how this monitoring of security is different in public cloud than in first party or on-prem? Yeah, I think public cloud is really interesting in in regards to security, mainly because there are several, you know, large players or vendors in the space and they, they each have their own very different offerings from one another. You know, some examples of these differences between the players are authentication authorization key in policy management. As an operator, you need to know the intricacies of each provider and how best to leverage those things and do it in a particular way that is is proper and correct. Uh, the same could be said about you know networking. Each of them provide you different building blocks to provide different layers of isolation. Um, and then that isolation has to even apply with multi-region support. So it's just a lot to take in. You know, if you're just using one public cloud offering and that's where your entire infrastructure lives, it's less of an issue. But as soon as you start to go the multi-cloud approach, you now have to understand or have a deep understanding of each of those providers and the offerings they provide and the security ramifications of each of those things and, and making sure you're doing it right. Public cloud providers have their own building blocks for implementing security and they have a certain amount of metrics that you can use and generally alerting or importing metrics into your own tools. Do they provide enough for a solution to monitor these type of security anomalies? Or are you looking at building your own security anomaly monitoring on top of these building blocks? You have to do both. I think, you know, it comes down to there has to be a certain level of trust with the vendors and and that they're providing these services and doing things the right way. And I would be willing to bet they're probably doing it better that, you know, myself or you or many of the listeners would be able to do it, but they still have their limitations where they are supporting a inherently multi-tenant environment. They're still human beings. They still write software. Uh, Human beings are flawed. Our software is flawed. Uh, the best code is no code kind of scenarios. So I think you, you need to be able to leverage these things and you can leverage the the metrics and the systems that they provide to ensure a, a secure operating environment. Same thing applies like with AWS, they have, you know, notifications say, hey, we notice your S3 bucket policy 
you know, it, it could have some public access that that is monitoring. That's a notification right there. So that's great. But we as operators leveraging these public services need to also leverage our own security tooling within the host systems as best we can. We have to leverage our own monitoring systems and we can tie them all together so that we're still getting that single unified visibility. But ultimately, we, we still have to do some of the old practices that we're doing when we're running these things uh, in-house. The fact that it's a multi-tenant system also is kind of terrifying because, you know, every few months now we're, we're learning of a new silicon uh, vulnerability, right? Like if we're all sharing the same CPU with, you know, uh, 20 to 100 other tenants, you still have to take that into account. So it, it gets pretty deep, you know, get your tinfoil and armadillo hat on because <laughs> that's why I think public cloud is so, so interesting. The other big area we're going to be talking about is monitoring privacy. Before we get into monitoring privacy, could you give a brief overview of what are privacy concerns that we face today, especially in public cloud? Where a lot of organizations started to get concerned around privacy challenges was with the rise of GDPR and how it impacts uh, all the, the, the businesses of today. So the GDPR or General Data Protection Regulation, you know, is really a set of laws within the EU, but they have such a global uh, effect. You know, North American companies have to deal with it. EU users as the consumers are the real winners um, here because now there's regulation that, that states, you know, they have the right to certain things about their data that companies uh, collect and use. You know, GDPR, the introduction and the fact that it's EU regulation that affects North American companies was pretty significant. And the fact that nowadays it's so trivial to run uh, an application or business globally in multiple regions, you now have to comply with these. And GDPR is just one. There's actually several other countries and states that have similar regulations. I mean, Brazil has LGPD, which is modeled after the GDPR. Australia has NDB, the Notifiable Data Breaches. It's really about breach of privacy disclosures, making sure that users know when their data has been um, exposed. Uh, California has CCPA, the California Consumer Privacy Act. So the list goes on and on, and privacy protection regulation is becoming more prevalent. So we really have to be uh, in tune to that as, as organizations, as businesses. And, and what makes this interesting for us as operators is to understand how our systems are operating, we're on an ongoing basis collecting more and more data about our systems, building out that rich set of context. That context may leak into the user experience and possibly have some crossover that contains some privacy information. So now you've got regulatory regulation applying to our data pipelines and visibility monitoring and observability tools. So. We have this effect which has regional regulation that has global effect that has an impact on our day-to-day -day as operators of these large systems. The area of privacy protection is quite broad. I do want to narrow focus down to what is the contribution of monitoring to privacy protection? Could you drill down into that? You know, earlier we, we kind of touched on the umbrella of monitoring and and I made the case for, you know, security monitoring to come underneath that umbrella. Uh, so intrusion detection and vulnerability scanning and that kind of thing. 
And I think the anomalies or the signals that they produce are, are fairly straightforward. And I think we can consider it monitoring. I think with privacy, it's really looking through our data collection systems for monitoring and observability and ensuring that information that's going through those systems don't look like privacy information. Um, that's one. The other would be actually leveraging monitoring as a form of compliance of you know privacy regulation within our, our applications and, and the like. So you can use it as an ongoing audit capability um, and then notify operators or take automated action uh, when you know something's in violation of that regulation. You've made two points there. Let's go into more detail in those a bit. You talked about data collection systems. What are some of the systems you're thinking of? We can start really broad in general. Uh, I mean, even syslog's a data collection system. If you're sending it centrally, you know we have uh, trace systems now uh, that span everywhere from you know the the user opening a, a web browser and viewing a page to uh, trickling down through all of your microservices. So that's some really rich information there. So really, it's like logs, trace. I consider even time series data with uh, you know good tagging and labeling. There's some a fairly good source of data there. Uh, basically, anywhere where we're scraping and and funneling information uh, into a central database for kind of uh, analysis. Uh, so that's what I consider to be general data collection. You're concerned about these data collection systems as places where there may be privacy leakages. Is that right? That That's part of it. So yeah, just being mindful that you may expose the, the organization uh, to some risk by collecting all that information if it, if it crosses over into private information, particularly for users that live or work within a a certain region with their own policies and, and law. Um, and then the other piece is leveraging still that data collection process and pipeline to uh, monitor the rest of the business to make sure it's complying with regulation. Um, so are we talking about, for example, someone accidentally logs a credit card number into a log aggregation system? Or would, th- would that be an example of the type of thing we're talking about? Not, not quite. I thinking, I'm thinking more uh, along the lines of, you know, if, if I'm capturing, you are a user of the system, you are a customer of mine, I am observing how you're using the application, and I want to contextualize all the data that's coming out around your particular experience in your session with your information uh, so that it, it goes through my system. I incorrectly use private information, maybe even just your email address and a few facts about you or I accidentally capture that, that goes through, I've now violated uh, regulation because it probably crossed regions, crossed bounds, it's stored in a new database. Uh, when you sign up as a user, I did not say, um, we will use your information to better understand how our systems work, yada, yada, yada. I think the, the crux of the issue of it is that you, when you signed up, you basically didn't sign up for somebody to leverage your personal information to contextualize monitoring data. Are we talking about then if any private information flows through different points of the system that you'll have the ability to detect that and alert on that based on uh, your own guidelines of what should or shouldn't be moving across different boundaries? 
So it really depends on your approach to data collection and if you're doing like localized aggregation first before pushing outside of a particular region. Perhaps, you know, if you're you're pooling, you're doing log aggregation on a, a per region basis first. And then if you were to just uh, observe those streams for particular information that looks like privacy uh, information, then you could catch it before pushing that data outside of the region. And, and you can delete and, and deal with it there. Ultimately, I think no matter what, if you do detect a violation, you have violated the privacy regulation. And it really depends on the regulation of what actions need to be taken as well. Perhaps the user needs to be mo- notified and told that there's been, you know, not a data breach, but misuse of their personal information. So I think I think that's just interesting. The the problem with this is it's it's hard for me to to answer it in a general way because it's so specific to the the actual regulation uh, that's being applied. So Sean, you and I were talking offline before we recorded about an incident that you you can't describe in detail because uh, it would compromise privacy of a customer. But privacy violation was found by a privacy audit that occurred after the fact. If you were thinking about how to set up a system to detect these things through monitoring and alert on them, how would you do that? During this retrospective, um, specifically, the security audit was looking at data collected and just kind of going through the the usual outputs, which is, you know, report data, uh, dashboard visualizations, and kind of the, the day-to-day analysis of that data. And you know, it became clear that some personal information had leaked through as context as, as part of that regular operation and, and analysis. So really, it's like there's, there's two ways that you could that I think you could learn from this experience or this example, which is perhaps you have a monitoring tool or mechanism to, on an ongoing basis, look for these common signs, make sure that data coming into the system is being anonymized or perhaps generating a unique ID for the user in their session, uh, which kind of codifies some of the unique attributes about them, but not actually leaking through that sensitive information. So you can monitor at the edge, uh, perhaps in SDKs or the libraries that are being used, perhaps put some constraints in place to protect developers from, you know, uh, having privacy data get into that data pipeline. You could also have a polling base at the aggregation points or the final destination to look for what looks like privacy information, or you could, you know, drink the Kool-Aid and experiment with things like machine learning to identify personal information as it comes through the system. Perhaps then that would be actually the, the most effective means of, of dealing with it. Last major topic I want to hit on is tooling. For conventional infrastructure monitoring, there are a number of popular tools that people are familiar with in sysadmin or DevOps, and then there are vendors who can provide dashboards and their own set of tools. When we're getting into monitoring security and privacy, are the existing tools adequate or are there other tools people should be looking at? Yeah, I mean, it depends how you you present some of the data. So in the case of taking security monitoring um, where we were capturing a number of files changed over time, intrusion detection, uh, violations, those kind of things, they can actually quite easily be visualized as, as time series. 
So we have tools like Grafana that can, and we have time series databases, so we can easily store and then visualize that information. So I think that's that's great. And Grafana actually has a number of different visualization tools. And then, you know, tools like uh, Sensu uh, uh, that can collect information from a different number of formats and, you know, run your probes on your services and applications and then output the events in different formats. I think data collection is is quite easy to do there. One example is I was, the other day I was using uh, Sensu to execute tripwire runs and then aggregate the results and then write them into Elastic. So I think we, we have a number of different tools that can be combined to address security and regulatory monitoring. But the reporting side, I think there's still, still a void there of, of how we can combine these best of breed tools that we already use for time series and service checks and other facets of monitoring, but combine them in a way that we can still provide meaningful reporting around security and compliance and, and uh, privacy. I think we're good on time series. I think we're good on the data collection and processing pipeline. I think the, the missing piece now is how do we present useful reports uh, that you know people are used to in terms of security and privacy regulation. All right, Sean Porter, thank you so much for speaking to Codish. Thanks for having me, Robert. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Codish podcast. Codish is produced by Heroku the easiest way to deploy, manage, and scale your applications in the cloud. If you'd like to learn more about Kodish or any of Heroku's podcasts, please visit heroku.com slash podcasts.